stay standing and open up your Bibles. This morning we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5. If you're using one of the hardcover Bibles from the back, you can find the passage on page 810. We'll be reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. We are reading God's word. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Thank you. You can have a seat. So in verse 29, Jesus says, uh, if you're right, I cause you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. And every time I, I read that passage, I think of uh, one of my most embarrassing moments, uh, which was a number of years ago, uh, Matthew and I were volunteering in a college ministry and leading a discipleship group of some guys and some stuff like that. And one of the guys in the group, his name was Tom, a uh, college student, and he, uh, he got this real bad eye infection. And no one was exactly sure where it came from or how he got it or whatever, but he didn't have health insurance, so he ended up down at County Hospital. And uh, it just got real infected and, and got kind of out of hand. And it got to the point where they actually had to remove it. So they removed his eye, put in a glass eye. And so Matthew and I, as the discipleship leaders of this group, decided to go down there with all the guys in our group and pray for Tom. And so we go into county, and that's an interesting place. If you've ever been to County Hospital um, in Phoenix, and just, just the fascinating in and of itself was interesting to have those guys there. And we gather around the bed, and we're praying for Tom, and everyone's praying and just thanking God for his faithfulness and whatever. And then finally, since I'm the leader of the group, it comes to me, and my prayer basically goes something like this. God, thanks for Tom. Thanks for your faithfulness during his surgery. And God, thank you for the truth that it's better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two. Amen. <laughs> and it was instantly one of those moments where you're like, I should not have said that. That was totally inappropriate, totally insensitive. You know, we're walking out of the hospital in the parking lot with the guys debriefing. Hey, what did you learn from that? What did you, you know? And they were like, I learned not to do that. And so every time I think of this passage, it always makes me think of that really foolish and insensitive prayer. Um, and so I just figured it would be maybe a, a good way to get started this morning. It's probably also the last time that we're going to laugh this morning. So I figured we ought to get a good laugh in uh, before we deal with some really serious stuff. Um, this is a pretty serious series, actually, as Jesus is looking, as Jesus is giving us some really shocking and challenging and extreme things. This is what this scandalous series is about, is some extreme sayings of Jesus. And we talked last week about this reality that Jesus is extreme in everything he says. He's not like a halfway, it's not mamby-pamby, it's like you're all in or you're all out. It's extreme. Uh, this is, I think, one of the reasons we know that the words of Jesus can be trusted, that he actually said these things, that the words we have recorded in Scripture are trustworthy. Because if you were just making up a bunch of stuff to win a popularity contest, this isn't the stuff you'd make up. 
This isn't what you'd say. And especially this message today talking about absolute sexual purity is not something that would win you a popularity contest in AD 33, and it for sure wouldn't in AD 2011. Um, This is a serious thing. It's an extreme thing, and I think we can trust that Jesus really said it. And it's not really going to be all that popular even today. I I don't go into this going, man, I think this message is going to make me really well liked as a pastor. Uh, But more to go, I just want to faithfully try to communicate as I try every week, what is Jesus saying? What does the text say? What is, what's, because he's the one that has authority. Uh, At the end of this sermon that we're looking at a portion of today, uh, if you're in your, if you're in Matthew 5, you can go to Matthew chapter 7. At the end of this sermon, here's how everyone responds to this in chapter 7, 28. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus' teaching is authoritative. Jesus' teaching has power. Jesus' teaching should be heard and obeyed. That's how they heard it, and that's how we should hear it. And so this section of teaching is in uh, chapters 5 through 7, and it's really, it's been known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the longest extended chunks of of Jesus' specific teaching that we have recorded in the Scripture. And what he's going after here, just in in terms of getting the context, is he's going after the heart. In chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And all throughout this passage, he's going to contrast um, sort of external religious behavior with true faith and life with God. And so he's going to do that. And so especially in chapter 5, he's going to have a bunch of times here, I'll show you these, where he quotes an Old Testament saying, and then he says, but I say to you, and what he's doing is he's trying to help us see the intention of the Old Testament is what I'm showing you. So uh, just for example... Um, in verses 21 and 22. 21 says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Verse 22, But I say to you. Uh, Verse 27, You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Verse 31, It was also said. Verse 32, But I say to you. Verse 33, You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he does this a couple more times. And it might sound on the surface like Jesus is contradicting what was said, right? You've heard this, but I say this. But Jesus is, is, wants to make sure that we don't come to that conclusion. So he says in verse 17, uh, look at 517, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot, that would be like not a, not a dot on an I, not a cross of a T, that kind of a thing, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What he's saying is, you've heard this, and you've applied it in as superficial a way as possible. And what I'm going to try to clarify for you here is not the letter of the law that you've already heard and that you've just lived superficially. I'm trying to help you see the spirit of it, the heart of it. Because blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not blessed are the externally moral. Blessed are the pure in heart. And so that's what he's talking about today. And specifically in the passage we're looking at, verse 27, uh, what he's going to talk about is, is the command to not commit adultery, one of the Ten Commandments. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what we're going to examine here today, 
is this issue of lust. That's what Jesus talks about in verse 28, lust. And here's where we'll go. We'll say what lust is, uh, why lust is disastrous, and how to fight for purity. What lust is, why it's disastrous, how to fight for purity. Uh, that's where we'll go. And, and this is a serious issue. Uh, this is an issue that I, that I know impacts, to some degree, every person in this room. To some of you, it impacts you even more. For some of you, some of the issues we're going to talk about today are what you might call a life-dominating sin. In fact, it might be to the point now where when you hear the word sin, you think lust or sexual impurity or something along those lines. If statistics bear out correctly, uh, half of the men here have looked at pornography in the last month, at least. And some of you, this is an ongoing challenge. And as we'll see, it's a challenge for both men and women. It's serious. And, and there's a burden that I, that I have here in trying to communicate um, the truth of it and the severity of it, also the grace that God offers, and also to try to do it in a way that's not tempting. I don't want to tempt even through my words. And so there's a lot that we could mess up here. So let's take a moment, uh, can we, and let's pray together. Let's ask God to really work in our hearts here this morning. Um, Father, we thank you that you are our Father. That reminds us that you love us, that you care for us. And God, as a good father, you want good gifts um, for your children. So we ask for the Holy Spirit to be given to us, that we might see ourselves as we truly are, and that we might see you as you are, that your name would be lifted high, it would be hallowed, it would be revered, that your glory would be what we live for here this morning. God, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our lives as it is in heaven. God, we pray for the kind of purity that we will someday experience in heaven to be real now. God, we pray that you would give us this day our daily bread, that we would see today that you are satisfying and that you are good and that you are enough. God, forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. God, those who are here today burdened by their sin. Would you express through the love of Jesus your forgiveness for them? God, for those who have been sinned against in the ways we'll discuss today, would they experience healing and grace? And God, even as we talk about these things, would you allow us to not be led into temptation, but deliver us from evil? God, this is for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what lust is? Let's begin there. Uh, Jesus says in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is lust? He says lustful intent. Uh, Lust, generally speaking, and this term is used a number of places in the scripture, uh, generally speaking, what it means is a desire, a longing, a craving, a passion. Uh, In fact, in a lot of places in Scripture, it's used not really to talk about a sexual thing as much as a a good desire that has become too much of a desire or an over-desire, an extra big desire, something that isn't just kind of an ordinary thing that you want, but it's something you want way too much. It's gotten out of hand. That's how the Bible talks about this word lust in general. Uh, Specifically in this passage, though, uh, we might define it this way, a gazing or dwelling on somebody in order to use them for your own satisfaction or delight. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about looking, specifically here at a woman, we could say at any person, with lustful intent. 
What is he saying? He's saying gazing or dwelling on. So this is both the, the continual looking, the gazing, as well as the thinking, the dwelling. Both of those things on somebody in order to use them for your own satisfaction or delight. This includes fantasizing about people in sexual ways as well as in um, sort of emotional ways. Uh, coveting them. It's interesting in this passage, um, Jesus refers to a number of the Ten Commandments, not all of them, uh, but one that he doesn't specifically refer to is the, the Tenth Commandment, which is that you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. That's you shouldn't want what they have. And it seems like the, the issue of adultery and the issue of covetousness are very similar. So for men, men tend to uh, lust in a very physical and visual kind of way. Women tend to lust in a very uh, covetous kind of way, imagining what would life be like with him? What if things had worked out differently? Why is it like this? I wish I had a relationship like that. So lust is all kind of intermingled with this covetousness, over-desire, that kind of thing. And when we do this, when we fantasize about people, when we objectify people physically, um, we minimize the image of God in them. The scripture says that everybody was created in the image of God, that you're an image bearer of God to reflect to the world who God is and his grace. And when we look at people and fantasize about people and begin to use them for ourselves, we forget that they're image bearers of God and instead we treat them like animals to be used. We dehumanize each other when we do this, when we think about it this way. Not just full, not, no longer fully human, just a piece of flesh. This is using somebody. I mean, that's kind of this idea of this definition. It's in order to use them for your satisfaction or delight, which is always selfish, right? You use people selfishly. There's a selfishness about this. This is an unloving thing, right? The opposite of hate, of of, of love is not hate. It's selfishness. And so when we do this, it's inherently Uh, selfish. And so one of the commentators comments on verse 28 about this, saying, what is Jesus talking about? What kind of expression is he really referring to? He says this, this is not one who without any evil intentions happens to see a person of the opposite sex. No, this is looking, gazing, staring at a woman in order to lust after her, to possess and dominate her completely, to use her for his own pleasure. There is nothing innocent about that. It is selfish. Right? So Jesus doesn't say, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who sees a woman has committed adultery in his heart. That's not what he says. It's not a sin to see. It's not a sin to notice. It's not a sin to even look at somebody. It's a sin to look again. It's a sin to then dwell on. It's a sin to then break a person down by their characteristics. That's lust. Lust, another way to say this might be, that lust is committing pornography in your mind. So when we think of pornography, we think generally of like explicit material, that sort of thing. Uh, Tim Chester has a very helpful book. Uh, it was great in preparing this and just thinking through purity and all sorts of issues called Closing the Window. And in that book, he defines porn this way. Here's his definition. He says, anything we use for sexual arousal, gratification, or escape, whether it was intended for that purpose or not. So this is all about how you use it, right? There are certain things that are obviously 
and explicitly and intentionally designed to be pornography. There's all sorts of other things that you might use that way to fulfill yourself, to have some kind of fantasy, to have some kind of escape, to have some kind of gratification, and it was never intended that way at all. Still, he would say, porn. And again, for men, this is more physical, it's more visual, it's more about, let me have a transaction in some kind of way. For women, it tends to be more emotional. Not always the case. Pornography, explicit pornography use among women is on the rise. It's no longer just a a male issue. And what's interesting about this is the issue of lust is not a 21st century issue. Right? I mean, this this has been around forever since sin entered the world. I mean, this has been there. What's different today is the access, the availability, and probably just how prevalent it is. I mean, right, everyone's using sex to sell everything. I mean, that's pretty much, it'd be like being an alcoholic and every product that's being sold comes with free beer. I mean, that's kind of how this is. This is a serious thing. And so some examples of this kind of lust, this sort of using uh, one another, that kind of thing would be, like we've said, the second glances, the repeated stares. It's not the first glance. It's not that you notice someone. It's, it's the second glance. It's the, I'm going to position myself here on this treadmill so that I can keep looking, that kind of thing. It's fantasizing about somebody who's not your spouse. Imagine, you know, getting to know someone and imagining them and sort of living out a fairy tale in your head, that's lust. Romance novels would be examples of this. Highly sexualized TV shows and movies would be examples of this. Did you know that from the time between 1998 and 2005, the number of sex scenes on American TV doubled? In those seven years, it doubled, right? So, so this is everywhere. It's prevalent. Lust is also looking at ads, looking at catalogs, looking at magazines, even things that aren't necessarily intended for that purpose, but in order to fulfill your pleasure. Lust is chat rooms. It's flirtatious online commentary. Lust is surfing Facebook to look up ex-boyfriends and girlfriends and imagine your life with them. That's lust. It's adultery in the heart. And then obviously explicit pornography, internet, video, etc., which is as an industry, generates 10 to $14 billion a year. More than the NFL. NFL's doing pretty good. More than all the music industry. Um, this is a big deal. So th- as we talk here, I-, I hope you get the sense. I'm not just talking to guys, and I'm not just talking to a small segment of guys. I'm talking to everybody. Because everybody, in some way, shape, or form, has thought about someone, fantasized about someone, done something that is using them for your own escape or pleasure or release or whatever. This applies to everybody in some way, shape, or form. The reason it's so tempting is because lust offers this pretend world where you're at the center. Your relationships are the way you hoped they would be. Uh, You're respected the way that you hope you would be respected. You're, you're worshipped and treated by beautiful people in a way that you hoped you would be treated. It's all fake. It's all pretend. It's all imaginary. I, uh, I read a story as I was preparing this of a, a, gal, a, a celebrity who was on the cover of a magazine and she was with a friend in a store and she looked at this magazine and, and, and said to her friend, why don't I look like that? And then she realized it was her on the cover. 
And she had been so made up and airbrushed and everything else that even, even she didn't look like that. It's fake. It's pretend. It's an illusion. And yet it's so enticing. So that's what lust is sort of generally. It's this using. But what Jesus here, the way he defines lust, this is interesting, is he says that lust is the revealer of adultery in the heart. So adultery, he quotes uh, in, in uh, verse 27, he quotes from Exodus 20, the, uh, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is a sexual relationship with someone that's other than your marriage partner, somebody other than the person you've entered into a marriage covenant with. And therefore, uh, sex outside of that relationship is a problem to God. This is a sin. This is wicked. And it's a serious sin. Uh, the scripture actually says that it deserves death, deserves stoning, says in Leviticus 20. You may go, gosh, that seems a little extreme. Well, maybe you're just a little too used to sin. And we're just kind of accommodated that now. But this is a serious deal. See, God is saying here in this 10th commandment, this is a big deal. When you enter into a covenant with somebody and you enter into that covenant before God and then you break that, that's a big deal. That's a problem. It deserves stoning. In fact, in John 8, uh, the Pharisees catch this woman in adultery and they bring her before Jesus and they're going to stone her. Interestingly, they don't bring the guy. We're not exactly sure why. And this is obviously a trap of some kind to, ch- to catch Jesus. And Jesus' answer to them is, hey, he who's without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. But he doesn't say, stoning's not good. He just says, hey, if you're, if you're sinless, go ahead and do it. And so that This is a big deal. Adultery. And so what Jesus is saying here, listen. Jesus is saying that lust reveals that adultery has already happened in the heart. See that verse 28? I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I always thought that this verse basically said, when you look at someone lustfully, you're committing adultery in your heart. That's not what it says. It says when you look at someone lustfully, you're doing that because you already committed adultery in the heart. There's some way that already in your heart you've allowed, um, you've allowed sin to creep in. And nobody commits physical adultery unless they've committed heart adultery first. And that's how it starts. It starts heart adultery. And then it's curiosity. And then it's a chat. And then it's a reconnection with an old fling. And then it's a, I just want to see how you're doing. Hey, it's been a long time. Hey, we should connect. And, and next thing you know, it's adultery. But it didn't start there. It started with adultery in the heart. See, the, the heart is like a crucible. Remember in science class in high school, did you ever have a crucible, right? That little metal bowl, and underneath it you'd put a Bunsen burner, and you'd put some kind of compound in that crucible, and you'd crank up the Bunsen burner, and it would heat up, and it would reveal all these you know, different kinds of smoke and different chemical reactions, and different things would come out of this, of this compound. And Jesus repeatedly says that your heart is like that, that there's just stuff in your heart, and the circumstances of life turn up the heat, uh, your failure turns up the heat, your success turns up the heat, all kinds of opportunities and temptations and blessings and all kinds of things in, in life turn up the heat in such a way that it reveals what's in your heart. So that's why we can't say, um, he made me lust, she made me lust. No, 
you lusted because you'd already committed adultery in your heart. It's already there. So if, if whenever we do this, this is, we're perpetrators, not victims. We're guilty. This is us. This is, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, congratulations, you're not an adultery, ad- adulterer physically. But listen, your heart ain't pure. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And it all starts there. The proverb, a kind of popular proverb, maybe you've heard this, uh, one that I came across. It's a little bit bumper stickery, but I think it's true. It says, sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Nobody that ruins their life with sexual sin ever intended to. And it all started with a small thing. So what is lust? Lust is looking at somebody, thinking about somebody, dwelling on somebody for your own physical and sexual pleasure. And it's also a revealer of adultery in the heart. Okay, now why is it so disastrous then? That's what lust is. Why is it disastrous? And I use that word intentionally, right? I don't say, here's why lust is bad. Here's why lust is wrong. Here's why you shouldn't do it. Lust is disastrous. It's ruinous. It's devastating. It will tear your life apart. Here and for eternity. Jesus talks about eternity in verse 29. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What Jesus here is saying is, if this sin isn't identified and fought with ferocity, with violence, with passion, if it's not fought that way, the end is hell. If this sin reigns, if this sin masters, like every other sin, it ends in hell. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you know what you deserve from this? Stoning. Eternal stoning. That's what you deserve. Right? There's adulterers, yeah, stone them. He's saying, if you're an adulterer at heart, Stoning for you, eternal stoning. And that's where this leads if it isn't dealt with. In eternity, apart from God. In eternity, experiencing the horror of his wrath against your sin. In eternity, alone and without him. And Jesus says it twice. Like, in case you're going, ah, he didn't really mean that. He says basically the same thing twice. And if your issue is going, that's too serious, then your issue is with Jesus. But that's what he says. This is devastating because it will threaten your eternal life. But it's also devastating because it ruins your life now. It ruins your life now. It destroys your ability to have intimacy, to have closeness, to have relationship with God and with the people closest to you. When you are engaged in this kind of sin, it is shameful, it is ugly. When you see it in yourself, you realize it, and, and, and it's, it's burdensome. You go, this is not how I should be. And then you feel like, I can't talk to God. I can't pray to God. Yeah, I know he's supposed to forgive me, but he won't. And, and, he, you know, and I've done it again, and I've prayed for this before. And, and, and your intimacy, your closeness with God dissipates. 
your closeness with those closest to you, your, your husband, your wife, your children. You, you can't be intimate if you're always hiding. See, intimate, it kind of goes back to the idea in uh, Genesis 2 that the husband and wife were naked and unashamed. It's like people, they, you just, you know each other, you know who you are, there's no secrets, there's no hiding. And if you're living a life of constantly hiding and constantly thinking about that, then the people that know you don't know the real you, they just know the pretend you that you're showing them. It's not real intimacy. This is a, an important phrase, purity paves the way to intimacy. That's how Andy Stanley says it. Purity paves the way to intimacy. The reason purity is so important is so you can have intimacy with God. Because if you don't have that, forget about hell, you don't have joy with God now. And then you get hell? That is not a promising future. It ruins your life by destroying intimacy. It ruins your life by creating shame and guilt. And it ultimately leads to death, as Jesus says. In Proverbs, uh, there's an example there of, of the father talking to his son and saying, hey, hey, son, look out for these things. Watch out for this stuff. And one of the things he warns him about is sexual immorality, and he does it in Proverbs 7. He, he says, speaking of this adulteress, this temptation to sexual sin, it says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. L- look at the imagery of this. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Does an ox go to slaughter if an ox thinks he's going to be killed? No. And so if you're engaged in, in cultivating this kind of sin of the heart, You think you're the exception. You think you've got enough ability to hide it and cover it and explain it away and minimize it and it's someone else's fault. You you think you can do that and you don't know. This will cost you your life. It will cost you your joy. It will cost you your ability to love people as people create an image of God. Destroy your relationship with the Lord. It's devastating. One of the things that I found helpful is to count the cost of this kind of sin. This is an article we'll post on, on, uh, probably on the blog tomorrow um, by Randy Alcorn where he talks about deterring immorality by counting its costs. And he recommends going through and listing out all the things that would be hurt in your life and in your ministry and everything else um, if you were to fall into some sexual sin. If you were to open that door and to cultivate it and to let that grow. And I've gone through that exercise, and I've listed those things out, and I've written down the ways that I would dishonor the gospel that I preach every week. I've written about how I would embarrass my family and those closest to me. I've written about how I would show myself to be a fool because I knew better and was exposed to more truth. I've talked, just written things to myself about people who have dealt with these very issues, who I've counseled and led, who would say, you're just a fraud. I mean, I've thought about all these things. And it's helpful to go look at that and to go, what's the cost of this? One of the biggest lies is, it doesn't hurt anybody. It's just all in my head. It destroys you. It's devastating. 
So we got to fight for purity. And that's what I want to finish with here is how do we fight for purity? Because the issue is not just going, lust is bad, stop. I mean, don't you wish it was that easy with all the stuff you struggle with? Hey, overspender, stop. Well, it's not that easy. Hey, overeater, stop. It's not that easy. Right? So, so how do we do this? How do we fight this specific sin? And what we're going to talk about are ways you could fight any sin, um, but specifically we'll apply it to this sin of lust in the heart, adultery being revealed in the heart. How are we to fight for purity? Well, Jesus gives us one indication in verses 29 and 30. See that? Look down there. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So what is Jesus' strategy to fight for purity? Amputation. Cut it off. You know, hmm. Is he, like, is he serious? Like, I mean, he, yeah, you said he's extreme. Like, does he really mean, like, it seems like Jesus is employing a metaphor here. And, and I think it might be obvious why. Imagine that your right eye causes you to lust and you tear it out. What's the problem? You still have a left eye. And you still have a heart that's messed up. Right? So, so this is not to be taken in a wooden literal form. That has actually happened before. People have gouged out eyes. People have other, done other surgeries on themselves to try to fight this. It doesn't change the heart. What Jesus here is saying is, you've got to take a I will do anything to stop this sin mentality. In, in the Hebrew uh, culture, the idea of the right eye and the right hand were the best eye, the best hand. Anything right was better. So Jesus is saying, if, if the most valuable parts of you lead you into this, get rid of them. Fight this, amputate it, do whatever it takes. Jesus here is, is saying, you've got to fight this with seriousness, with effort. This cannot be a casual, maybe this will just go away thing. You've got to make war. And I don't know if you know this, but the Christian life is war. That's why Paul in Ephesians 6 says, put on the armor of God, because you're at war and you never take it off. So how do we fight as hard as possible? What do we do with this? Well, there's five ingredients, at least, in the battle for purity. And I get these, again, from Tim Chester's book. Very helpful. Closing the window. Uh, would highly recommend it. And he lists these five ingredients to fight uh, lust, to battle for purity. Here's the first one. This may seem obvious. Avoid temptation. Avoid temptation. If you know certain places and certain times and certain ways that you are tempted... Certain people that when you hang around them, you're tempted, avoid it. Get out of it. Flee from it. Uh, The the same person in Proverbs 5 is is instructing his son. He says, hey, hey, son, stay away from this. He says, and now, O sons, listen to me. Don't depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. That means run as fast as you can. Flee from it. He doesn't say, get as close to the edge of the cliff as you can without falling. So if you know the places and the times when you're weak, you go, I'm just going to go check email right now. I'm just going to go to... It's, 
it's going to lead you somewhere you don't want to go. Avoid it. Get out of it. Flee from it. Run away. If you know this relationship that just constantly is talking about sexual stuff that you just can't get away from, or, or if, if you have a friend who's a woman who's constantly complaining about her husband and it just leads you to sort of complain about your own life, get rid of that relationship. Flee from it. It's not worth it. It's going to ruin you. Don't coddle it. This is a decisive no at the first temptation. Avoid it. The example we have in Scripture is of Joseph. Uh, Joseph uh, was sold into slavery by his brothers. Um, Because of his faithfulness and just God's grace to him, he gets elevated to the place of, he's the manager over Pharaoh's, or over Potiphar's household. Potiphar's wife is a seductress. She's an adulteress at heart. She's always saying to him, let's sleep together, let's sleep together, let's sleep together. One day she actually even grabs him, grabs his clothes and like is pulling him and says, let's go. And he, he lets her take his cloak and he's out. He runs, he flees. She ends up using it to betray him. He ends up going to prison. It costs him big. But it didn't cost him his soul. And at the end of all of it, he's still able to say, what man intended for evil, God used for good. It's worth it. It's worth that. But avoidance by itself isn't enough, right? And especially in our culture. I mean, how do you avoid sexually charged, sexually stimulated stuff in our culture? How do you do that? Right? You, you can't if you want to have any connection to the outside world at all. And even if you wanted to go be a hermit, I'm not sure that that would help. Uh, the story is told of St. Anthony, who did become a hermit. In the Egyptian desert. Lived out in the desert for 35 years. Thought that that would help in his battle for purity. It didn't. He found that Satan was just as able to tempt him in the desert as in the city. And he found that his heart was just as corrupt and wicked. So for sure, avoid temptation. Don't get as close to it as you can and then say, Oh, I, I'll pray for strength in the midst of it. Eh. Amputate first, pray later. So you got to do that, but, but that's not enough. You also need a second ingredient. You need accountability to others. You need other people that you can be accountable to, other people that, that know your sin. You need this in every area of your life. Do you have people in your life that know your weaknesses, that know your struggles, that know your, the chinks in your armor, and are praying for you in that, and are encouraging you in that, and when they see a blind spot that you don't see, are lovingly able to just point that out to you and speak good news to you? Do you have that? You need that. And this sin especially, which thrives in the dark. It's like a fungus that grows in the dark. But when the light exposes it, it's like, ooh, yeah, I I don't want that. We need accountability. I I like 2 Timothy 2, 22, which has a couple of these ideas here. It says, so flee youthful passions. Okay, so we got that. Avoid it. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee that, but go to other people who can help you. This is one of the reasons why community is so important to us. Is we think that we need environments to connect with one another. You're not going to connect with everybody uh, in the same way. You're not going to, uh, I hope, just broadcast all your sin to everybody in ways that are kind of inappropriate and weird. But you ought to have at least somebody. Here's what we want you to do this week in your communities, in your redemption communities as you meet this week is we want to encourage you to break up as men, men with men and women with women, and we want you to talk about how these issues apply to you. 
specifically how they apply to your heart, the areas where you need to battle for purity. Um, there's also the reality here, because many are married, and many have just passed and other stuff, where uh, some of what might come out of this is just the ways you've been sinned against. Maybe a spouse's sin, a spouse's struggle. And uh, we for sure want you to, to, to get help with that, to talk with somebody about that. I'd encourage you, don't have that be the conversation with the whole group, especially if it's about a spouse's sin. Uh, maybe take that to a, to a trusted friend or to your community leader or, or a pastor, somebody that can really help kind of counsel through that. But you've got to talk with somebody about these things. You've got to get accountability software if computer stuff is an issue. You've got to get covenant eyes. That's a great tool. We'll hold you accountable. We'll send reports uh, to friends or to whoever you designate that's going to hold you accountable. Uh, we've decided as a staff that everyone on staff is going to have covenant eyes. That's just going to be part of what it is to be here um, so that we can be protected in that way and encourage each other that way. Avoidance of temptation, accountability to others. Now, here's the thing. This is where most people stop. If they ever get to this, right? Most people just, I'll kind of try to avoid temptation. Not amputation, but just, uh, I'll try to avoid it. Or maybe I'll tell somebody. But it can't stop here. Because, again, it's not a surface issue. It's an issue of the heart. So you got to deal with the heart. How do we fight for purity with the heart? And so here's the third thing, is you need an abhorrence of lust, a hatred of lust. Not just the consequences it brings, but a hatred of the sin itself, of how it defiles you, how it defiles who you are and made in the image of God, how it defiles the people that you're sinning against, how it breaks your intimacy with God and your intimacy with your family. You need to hate it, not hate it, uh, so that God will bless you, like, hey, i got to do this to prove myself to God so he'll bless me, and not, i gotta, I got to, you know, really try to fight this to prove myself to my wife or my friends or my community group, and not, you know what, i just got to prove this to myself. I know I can do it. I, I know I'm better than this. I, 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 I. That's all that is. It's putting yourself at the center of it, which is itself sin and pride. So it's not for those reasons, but it's to go, I want to hate this because God hates it. If, if you can't cultivate that hatred, you'll always flirt with it. You'll always justify it. You'll always explain it away. You'll always blame it on someone else. We need to cultivate a hatred for sin. Here's the fourth thing. We need to fight to adore God. Avoidance of temptation, accountability to others, abhorrence of lust, adoration of God, to love God, to trust God, to see that God is better. We need to fight to adore him. He says in Isaiah 55, this would be a great passage for you to go look up. In Isaiah 55, he says, why do you labor for things that won't satisfy? Come to me, eat what is good, delight yourself in the richest of food. I will satisfy you. But we don't believe that. I know I don't always believe that. I mean, there's times, aren't there, where you just go, I'm, 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 God, I'm, I'm talking to you. I just don't sense you're there. I don't sense you're doing anything. And if you're doing anything, you don't seem to be doing it very quickly. But I know this can satisfy now. We have to fight to adore God. Here's the thing. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, 
It's not that you shouldn't lust, it's you don't need to. This is how Tim Chester says it. He says, we don't say to ourselves, I should not lust. We say, I don't need to lust because God is bigger and better. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the temple uh, curtain was torn in two, symbolizing that you have access to God. The scripture says that Jesus is interceding for you at the right hand of the Father, and that the Spirit himself intercedes with you with groanings too deep for words. God is for you. Who can be against you, the scripture says. He's better. It's not you shouldn't. It's you don't need to. You have something way better. You have God. And he is enough. And this is where the fight of faith comes in. Because sometimes, isn't it? It's just hard to believe that. It's hard to believe that God's enough. You can't see him. You kind of go through a dry spell, especially when you're tempted. I mean, it's just hard to see that. So it isn't just like, just believe just believe. Just, if you just believe in Jesus, everything will be okay. There's no just about it. Fight. Fight to believe that God is better. This is why you read your Bible. This is why you pray. This is why you ask other people to pray for you. This is why you get involved in community. This is why you fast so you can feel the hunger in your belly and say, God, would my hunger for you be that big? This is why you make war so you can adore God, so you, your heart can see, yes, He is better. All of him is enough for all of me, for every thirst, for every need. He satisfies me. He's enough. I fight to believe that. And then the last thing, number five, the last ingredient, this is so key. You, You won't conquer this, have victory over this at the heart level if you don't get number five. You need assurance of grace. You need assurance of grace. You need assurance that what Jesus Christ did on the cross for this specific sin of impurity and of lust was enough. That he satisfied the wrath of God. Listen, Jesus took the stoning you deserved. Adultery, stoning. Adultery in the heart, eternal stoning. What does Jesus take on the cross? He is separated from his Father. He is stoned to death on the cross separated from this father that he's had eternal relationship with. He took your stoning. And therefore he did it so that you could experience grace. So that you could experience new power, new life, new ability to overcome sin and to see it as as it is and to see him as better. That's why he died for you. So you need to fight with assurance of grace. You don't fight just going, man, I'm terrible. Man, I'm bad. Man, I'm awful. You fight knowing he loves me, he gave himself for me, he'll forgive me. I have a friend who, for a number of years, was totally, totally creamed by uh, internet pornography use. Just couldn't fight it, or couldn't, couldn't overcome it. And he said that every, uh, at some point he, he started to overcome it. He was still tempted, but he started to have obedience. And I said, what changed? And he said, you know, I used to fight it saying, don't look at porn, don't look at porn, don't look at porn, don't look at porn. And now I fight it saying, treasure Jesus, treasure Jesus, treasure Jesus. It's the assurance of grace. It's the assurance that what Jesus did is enough that will give you the spiritual strength to overcome this. 
A verse we go to a lot is 2 Corinthians 5.21. I love this. What a great gospel in a nutshell passage. Here's what it says. It says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. On the cross, that's what happened. It's Jesus who had no sin was treated as a sinner for us. He was stoned in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a great passage. What a great idea of the substitute. He gets your sin. You get his life. You get his righteousness. He gets your death. You could tweak this a bit, though. In any struggle with sin, let, let's, let's, say, let's get specific. What, what does this look like as it relates to what we're talking about? looks like this. God made Jesus, who never looked with lust, to be punished like a porn addict, so that in him we might become sexually pure. That is the gospel for lustful hearts like yours and mine. So that we might become sexually pure. He's done that for us. The day will come, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you will be sexually pure. All your sin will be removed. Not just the power, but the presence of it. Right now the power's gone. Jesus has removed it. The presence of it remains, and someday that will go away. And part of what will make it go away is that you will see God as he is. And so we fight now to see God as he is, to see him as better, so that we can overcome the temptation. This is something key you've got to see. Because some of you, I know, that if this has been a, a struggle for you, if this has been a thing, one of the things you've prayed before, maybe you've prayed there's all kinds of sin, is you've prayed, God, I'm so sick of this. I'm so tired of this. Please take this away. God, I don't ever want to deal with this again. Just take it away. And what we're usually praying for is that the temptation would go away. But listen, victory is not life without temptation. Victory is struggling with temptation and consistently choosing obedience because you trust that Jesus is better. That's victory. And that's what I so want for each of us. That's what I want in my life. I, sure, I'd love no temptation. Anybody up for that? Yeah. But temptation's coming, and it's especially coming in this area. And so I pray that my own heart and that your heart, that we could see Jesus as better and consistently choose him over the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's our prayer. Let's pray that together.